Turn with me, if you will, again to uh, the book of Genesis. And we'll look this morning at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. Today I feel like I ought to preach with my shoes off. But we stand on holy ground when we come to Genesis 15. This chapter is one of the most momentous chapters in the whole Bible. Here we learn for the first time how man and woman can be made right with God. Here we learn that the law received on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, which is so awesome and so wonderful and so terrible that that's not the primary thing God has to say to us. That's only a temporary Johnny-come-lately thing. That there's a prior covenant that's so much greater. Reflected here. Here we learn about God's grace in ways we never dreamed. Oh, here we approach great mysteries Truths too profound for any preacher to unpack. I must tell you, I feel dwarfed by this text this morning. Here we stand on holy ground. And yet there are truths we can learn here that are awesome and that we need to know, simple and straightforward, and hopefully we can grasp some of those though we will never begin to understand all that God intended and what God was doing in this place. Let me read this whole chapter, Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of your Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with their great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, 
To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Amen. I'm certain we can't explain everything that there is to learn in this chapter and the many, many questions that are raised which we could talk about that we're not even going to discuss. But I hope we will learn at least three great truths from this text. The first is this. God promises us himself. God promises us nothing less than himself. It'd be easy for us as we approach this chapter to do so with a very narrow perspective. Here God promises Abram two things. He promises him descendants, as many as the stars of the heavens, and he promises him land, a great parcel uh, of land between the, the river of, uh, of, of Egypt and the Euphrates River, a huge portion eventually controlled by King David and King Solomon. In recent years, there's been so much emphasis focused on those tangible promised intimacies, a people and a land. You hear about it all the time in Christian circles. And God certainly made those promises, and he made good on those promises to Abram. But upon more careful study, it becomes crystal clear that in reality, God was promising Abram much, much more than that. God was promising Abram nothing less than his own self. And that promise is extended to us as well, even today. Now we might miss that truth, though it's certainly there, as we'll see. Except for the teaching of the apostles, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who unpacked this chapter for us so well in the New Testament. The best commentary I have on Genesis 15 is Paul's writings in Galatians and, and Romans and the book of Hebrews. Those are the best commentaries on, on Genesis 15. Consider, for example, <clears throat> what the rest of the Bible explains concerning God's promise of descendants of, for Abram. You see that promise right there in the verses 2 to 5? Let me read it again. Abram said, O sovereign God, what can you give me since I remain childless? Inherit my state as Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God promised Abram descendants. Sure enough, God stood by his promise. Not immediately, but another ten years or so down the road, Abram and Sarah had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons, twelve tribes of Israel. They grew. And uh, by the time we get 400 and some years down the road in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses says of Abram's descendants, the people of Israel, I quote here, The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars of the sky. God kept his promise to give Abram a descendant, descendants. Oh, but when we listen to the apostles, 
guided by the Holy Spirit, teaching us what God really had in mind, we find there was a much bigger reality than just, you're going to have a big family. First of all, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul argues that the real descendant that God had in mind was the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16, let me read it. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now my interpretation, that's God's interpretation. Oh, but he doesn't stop there. Well, these blessings which are inherited by Christ then are also given to all who know him. So later on in Galatians 3 verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. Therefore, in Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul can write, so then Abram is the father of all who believe. And again, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, that is the Jews, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Oh, but you see, if the promise here is not just the promise of physical descendants of the Jewish nation, but if the promise is those who by faith are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, will be Abram's descendants, then what exactly is God promising? He's promising Abram and all of his descendants, even to including us now, for we're in Christ. He's promising full redemption from sin, resurrection life in Jesus, Intimate indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Eternal fellowship with the Father. Personal relationship to God himself. All the benefits of the gospel, of being reconciled to our God, God promises us nothing less than himself. Or consider the other promise here in this chapter. The promise of the land. You see it there in verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. You see again in the last half of verse 18, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the river, the great river of the Euphrates, the land of all these people that he lists. A very specific promise. God made that promise in good faith. God kept his promise. Abram's descendants went down into Egypt, just like God described here. There they became slaves and were oppressed, just like God described here. But 400 years later, God delivered them from that slavery and brought them back to this land, just like God described here. And under Joshua's leadership, they conquered and took possession of this land, just like God described. Until at the time of King Solomon, at the pinnacle of the Jewish empire, we read in Second Chronicles that all the people left from the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, sound, sound familiar to those peoples? That is, their descendants remaining in the land whom Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon 
conscripted for his slave labor force. In other words, God had completely delivered this land into the hands of the descendants of Abram, now ruled by King Solomon. God kept his promise of a land. But again, when we look at the rest of the Bible, we learn that God had much more in mind here than just a real estate deal with Abram. That's not all that's going on. God is promising nothing less than himself. For example, if we go back to Galatians 3 again, that passage where that singular seed is identified as a reference to Jesus Christ, Paul talks about the promise given to the seed of Abraham. He refers to the inheritance promised. <clears throat> well, according to Genesis 12, and earlier passages like this one, the inheritance God had promised was the land. To your seed I will give this land. And yet in Galatians we learn that the seed is Christ. In other words, the land promised to Abraham was the same thing later promised to Abraham's singular seed, who is Jesus Christ. So I ask you the question, what exactly? What land has God promised to Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham? What exactly is the scope of that promise? Well, Paul doesn't have any question. When he's talking about this passage in Romans 4, he says, Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Paul says, oh, oh, it's bigger than this little piece of real estate. Heir of the world. Isn't that what God promised his son in Psalm 2? Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. Christ is the heir, not of a little chunk of real estate in the Middle East. He's the heir of everything. <laughs> the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The whole universe. And those who are his will reign with him in glory, he tells us. Well, you see, this isn't about a little piece of real estate. That's not what the promise is really about. That's a temporary, superficial promise. This is about God calling a people to himself, people into relationship with himself for all eternity and giving them nothing less than himself and everything he has. And the truth is, Abraham understood a little bit of that. For in Hebrews chapter 11, we read of Abraham, listen to this statement. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. And why did he live in tents as a stranger and alien in this land? Why? Hebrews explains. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And a few verses later we read, all these people were still living in faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. On earth, They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. 
Oh, you see, Abram's faith was much more sophisticated than we might think. He understood something of the fact that the promises of God were more than just about a son and a piece of land. God was promising him his very self. Indeed, that's exactly what God said at the beginning. Look at verse 1 again. Very first verse. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. Listen to this. I am your shield, your very great reward. I am your shield and your very great reward. Read a sermon by the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon on this one little verse, and he says here, It is not the land of Canaan that was to be given to Abraham. No, it's not the land of Canaan. That was to be given to Abraham, but that was not his great reward. It is not a posterity, though he pined for it. No, it is not anything that God will give him. It is God himself. I, Jehovah, the Hebrew is peculiarly emphatic in setting apart the word. I, Jehovah, am thy exceeding great reward. The Lord himself is the portion of his people. All this morning I would challenge you to consider what is your great treasure. Perhaps the reason we put so much emphasis in Christian theology on land and descendants in the Middle East is because material things are so important to us. But that's not what God deigned to give him or us. He has sent the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ our Lord, in order to reconcile us to himself, that he might be our portion forever. What sacrilege then? If we have no interest in the greatest reward but would only use him to gain worldly prosperity when God has promised us himself. Oh, but how would Abram or us ever lay hold on such a promise? How could we stand for a moment in God's holy presence? How could we ever enjoy the holy God who would consume us in his wrath because we're sinners. Well, that brings us to the second point, which is this. God accepts those who believe him. God accepts those who believe him. Dr. James Boyce writes, Genesis 15, 6 is one of the most important verses, if not the most important verse in the entire Bible. For it tells for the first time how sinful man or woman may become right with God. In fact, this verse, Genesis 15, 6, is so important that it is quoted three more times in the New Testament. Let me read it again, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder what this means. The Holy Spirit has given us an extensive divine commentary on this verse through the apostles. 
Most importantly, here we are to understand that our right standing before God cannot be attained by our own efforts. We have no works good enough that we could bring to somehow climb the ladder and reach God and establish our own righteousness. We cannot do it. It's impossible. God accepts those who believe him. Now Paul makes this crystal clear when he begins his discussion of this in Romans chapter 4. Let me read the first few verses. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the Scripture say? He quotes this verse. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul continues. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God accepts those who believe him, who trustingly rest in God's promise, though they have absolutely nothing to coerce him to accept them, though they bring nothing acceptable. They're wicked in themselves. God accepts those who believe him. How does it work? How does this work? Is there some special power then in our faith? The New Age mysticism that kind of swirls around our heads these days would have us think, oh, we hear all the time about how we have the power within ourselves to do whatever we want if we would just believe in ourselves. Poppycock. That's exactly the opposite of what God says. Exactly the opposite of what he's saying in Genesis 15 and in the New Testament explanations. Dr. Ian Duguid explains, there is no special power that resides in an attitude of trust. Abram's faith was not in the power of faith, nor was it a leap in the dark. Abram's faith was a settled conviction that God would do what God had promised, no matter what. Abram didn't go out and immediately perform a mighty deed for God as a result of his faith. He simply believed in the free promise of God and took him at his word. That was the attitude of faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Apostle Paul says the same thing, Romans 4. Against all hope, Abram in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver. Through unbelief, 
regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. That's still true. God accepts those who even looking at the face of impossibility believe what God said. Period. Trust Him. That's why this is such a great verse. We need to understand the same thing. This is how God still accepts us. Paul goes on to make that point in Romans 4. The words it is credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So what are we to believe? Well, it's not just a list of facts. We're to believe him. We're to trust him. We're to rest in him. Rest, listen to his promise and take him at his word. That promise is the message of the gospel. That God out of love for this sinful world sent his son Jesus Christ, who lived in perfect righteousness before the Father, and then willingly went to the cross laying down his righteous life to pay the penalty for my sin. And God was pleased with his atoning death and raised him from the dead. And now he promises forgiveness of sins, he promises eternal life to anyone who will abandon his confidence in himself, turn away from the sin that God hates, and by faith trust what Jesus did in place of what I could do for myself. It still seems impossible, doesn't it? How could God raise somebody from the dead? How could God give salvation free of charge? We get what we deserve, right? How could God ever forgive me? I mean, I know the depth of my sin. Well, I could never change. Oh, it's too much to believe. No, I couldn't change. That's why I so desperately need a Savior. That's why salvation cannot be based on our own merit, for we have none. But the ancient truth still stands. God accepts those who believe him. So I hold before you the promise of Jesus Christ. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's passed from death to life. That's Jesus' promise. Take him at his word. Rest in that truth. For God accepts those who believe him. One more truth. Third thing we need to learn from this passage. <clears throat> God himself guarantees his promises. God himself guarantees his promises. This is a wonderful part of the story. For it shows us that Abraham was just like us. He was pretty shaky in his faith sometimes. 
But it also shows us that God is wonderfully assuring as he still is today. You see Abraham's shaky faith there in verse 8. <clears throat> God's made all these promises to Abraham. And verse 8, Abraham says, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah, Lord, but how do I know for sure? <laughs> oh, but let's think about how God reassured him that God personally guaranteed the promise. To understand what's going on here in this last part of the chapter, from verse 9 down to the end, you have to know something about the ancient culture. These verses assume that you know something about how covenants were made. Well, there's a solemn ceremony involved that we see reflected in these verses. <coughs> Actually, this practice is probably <coughs> how the expression to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant, came to be. And we find that uh, expression in the scripture, the making of a covenant. Here's the procedure. In ancient times, people want to make a covenant. And so they bring, uh, they bring some animals, some sacrificial animals, for this ceremony. And they take these animals and they dismember them. They cut them right down the middle. They cut them in half. And they, and they put half of them over here. And they put half of them over here. Separate all these animals in half. <clears throat> and then the two parties making this covenant, they, uh, they, they come together and they walk down this quarter between these dismembered animals. Perhaps swearing to one another the terms that they've agreed on for this covenant. Now this seems pretty gory to us, but the symbolism is very powerful. Because what is happening here, and there's a verse in Jeremiah 34, that, uh, 34, 18 I think it is, that, uh, that uh, explains what this is about, just so that you know that we just didn't make this up. What's going on here is that two, the two parties making this covenant are saying to each other, may I be as these dismembered animals if I fail to keep what I have promised to you today. Talk about signing in blood. <laughs> this was signing in blood. So in answer to Abram's doubt, Lord, how will I know? How do I know that you're really going to do what you told me? God tells Abraham to go and get some animals and set up this covenant ritual. And so Abram does. <clears throat> We're told that he brings a heifer and a goat and a ram, all three years old, and he brings a dove and a pigeon. Abraham knew the routine. He'd divided the animals up. He placed half of them over here, half of them over there, made this little corridor between all these dismembered animals. But God didn't return right away. And in the meantime, the birds of prey saw lunch, and they became, started to come down to pick up these uh, dismembered uh, carcasses, and Abraham runs around chasing them all away. And they're spread out somewhat, so he's chasing back and forth, trying to chase the birds away and getting himself exhausted. And he does that, apparently, for a while. And as the sun is setting, God causes a deep sleep to come over Abraham and a deep, deep thick darkness to come. And apparently exhausted and just totally out of commission, Abraham is wiped out and he's, he's uh, gone. And then the strangest thing happens. God appears. God appears in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. 
not entirely unlike how he will appear to lead his people through the wilderness someday, the great Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire by night. And while Abram is totally out of commission in this deep trance or whatever, God, in the form of this fire pot and smoking torch, blazing torch, God passes down the corridor between the dismembered animals while helpless Abram is laying there doing nothing. Well, God made an Ab- a covenant with Abraham, all right. But do you see what happened? Only God took the oath. The faithful execution of the terms of the covenant were made to rest only on God, not on Abraham. God himself guaranteed his promises. Oh, dear folks, herein lies the certainty of our salvation. It does not rest on our ability to hang on. It is pure grace. God alone saves us. Not God plus me. Not God does his part, I do mine. God alone saves me. What was pictured there that day in that solemn ceremony was accomplished by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Professor Ian Duguid writes about this. Let me just read. He can say it better than I can. He says, By what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could it have been displayed more vividly? The only way would have been for the figure to become a reality, for the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abraham. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus so that the guilty ones who placed their trust in him might experience the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and we might be his people. Or as the hymn writer Johann Hiermann said in the 16th century, what punishment so strange is suffered yonder. The shepherd dies For the sheep who love to wander. The master pays the debt his servants owe him who would not know him. The sinless son of God must die in sadness. The sinful child of man live in gladness. Man forfeited forfeited his life and is acquitted. And God is committed. You see, on the cross, God did to the fullest extent what he had promised in his covenant with Abram. What was symbolized here was realized at the cross. God himself guaranteed the promise 
of the gospel. You see, this is how you can, why you can know that you have eternal life. If it rested in you, how you're doing, well, one day you would be up and one day you would be down. You can never know for sure. But when you look away from yourself and you rest solely on the Lord Jesus and what he has done, you can have absolute assurance. For he guarantees his work unilaterally. Dr. D. James Kennedy tells of an elderly Scottish woman who lay at death's door. And her pastor visited her and said, Well, Sadie, suppose that when you die, God should allow you to perish. What then? Well, she said, that's up to him. He will do what he will. But if he does allow me to perish, he will lose more than I. For though I will lose my soul, he would lose his honor. For he has promised me in his word, he who believes in me shall never die. See, she understood the source of all of our assurance that in Christ, God himself has guaranteed his promises. Oh, I know we haven't unpacked everything in this chapter. There's the whole thing about the iniquity of the Amorites becoming full. That's an interesting discussion. All kinds of details. But I hope that you'll see why this chapter is such a milestone in the Bible. Alan Ross, who writes on the book of Genesis, says it so well. He says, the principles in this chapter are essentially the same for any age. Today, people become the people of God by faith as well. And their faith brings righteousness before God, just like Abram. To New Testament believers, God has also made great prophecies, promises. But those promises seem to be delayed in the face of suffering and death, just like they were here. But his covenant, which he made by his own blood, through that, our Lord has guaranteed that his word is sure, that neither death nor oppression can destroy his promises. Or as I would summarize it for you in these three things, God promises us himself, not just stuff, himself. God accepts those who believe him. And God himself guarantees his word. Amen. Father, thank you for this truth of this passage that spoke to Abraham in certain terms that only he understood, but that said so much more and speaks, Lord, to, term, to things that are applicable to us and to all people on the face of the earth. For they speak of our Savior Jesus and the great inheritance that you promised him that was only foreshadowed in Abram in these words. Help us, Lord, not to get all hung up in the pictures, oh, but to see the glorious reality, to see what you're doing today, the end of all those things, the glorious gospel 
the death and resurrection of Jesus and forgiveness of sins and new life that dwarfs the pictures given to Abram. Give us a passion for the gospel, Lord. We have nothing else. Here we rest our souls. Lord, here we find our assurance. Here we find our reason to live, to declare, to live out these wonderful truths. So as we reflect on these things today, I pray that you would cause us to digest them and I pray that the seed that's planted in our hearts would grow and bear fruit among us. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.